have some good news. Um, little Elsie, our granddaughter, is coming home today. She's got the five pounds, five ounces. Thank you all for praying. I want to speak to you all about the power of prayer. We're in Esther chapter 5. You can find that in your mobile device. Most likely, I can't say anything about prayer you don't already know. You know that prayer changes things, right? That sometimes prayer changes your circumstances. It changes nations. It sometimes changes our heart, our perspective on our circumstances. If I said, you know, Christians should pray to God because he hears our prayers, you wouldn't say, what? Did Pastor R say I should pray? I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Most Christians live with some low-level guilt about their prayer life. We've heard many sermons about prayer, that we should pray, but we really haven't learned how to pray. And the last thing that would be helpful for a Christian with a less than vibrant prayer life would be to make you feel guilty about not praying enough. Shame doesn't lead us to God. But I believe we learn how to pray by praying. And so if you want to learn about prayer, whether you're new at this or been a prayer warrior for a long time, we're going to invite you to pray with us after the service. We're going to just pray to God, pray for our country, pray for our community, pray for our single moms. We're going to pray. Um, I believe there's great power in prayer. Amen? But all of us, all of us can go into what I call a prayer slump. <laughs> we've been really busy. We've been neglecting prayer. We're not making room for prayer. So that's why we really want to intentionalize prayer in our church. We want to be a discipleship church. We want to make this a house of prayer. We want to energize your prayer life and jumpstart it if it's been in a slump. To be honest with you, I have seen God miraculously answer many prayers. I have actually seen people with cancer become healed when people prayed. The small group I'm a part of, uh, we pray. We begin our sessions with prayer. We pray with the end. We pray over physical problems, family issues, and it's just a beautiful thing to see God answering those prayers. Um, the good news is that prayer is very, very powerful. The bad news is that prayer is perplexing. <laughs> Sometimes we pray and God shows up. God shows off. Other times we pray in the same way, and God didn't do what he could do. God didn't do what we thought he should do. God didn't do it on our timetable, and he was teaching us things like perseverance and persistence and waiting. But I read in the Bible some amazing prayers, and now we come to our notes. In Joshua 10, uh, the Israelites <laughs> needed some extra hours to finish a battle. You know, we're in a battle. They were in a battle. And Joshua prayed that the sun would stand still. Now, that takes some amazing faith to believe the sun's going to stand still. And God made the sun to stand still. I contrast the prayer life of a person like Joshua with my own prayer life, and I have prayed many times for wayward husbands who would be given a spirit of repentance. And I'm still waiting for God to answer that prayer because God doesn't seem to override their will. They continue in their pattern of putting their wives and children through much grief and much hurt. In Kings 18, we see that Elijah, the prophet, called Ahab and the prophets of Baal to Carmel. He said, the God who answers by fire is the true God. Elijah called down fire from heaven, and God sent that fire and consumed the sacrifice. I have pleaded with God so many times for many people dealing with cancer over the years. 
And sometimes what happens is the Spirit of God gives me a picture of that cancer being eradicated. But on other times we have prayed and we didn't get the healing on this side. They go home. I guess I'm really not in control. I can't demand God to do my will. It's not if I have enough faith will I see everything happen. Daniel prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and night, 7 a.m., 12 noon, 5 p.m., three times a day, every day. He opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and he prayed his heart out. Somebody might say to Daniel, you know, meet me at Cracker Barrel for one of those country breakfasts, 7 a.m. He said, nope, I got an appointment. I can meet you at 7.45. Well, how about, Daniel, we meet for lunch at Burger King, you know, have a hamburger together. Well, the Burger King shut down. <laughs> but let's find some, a Burger King that's open. Well, I can't meet you at 12, but I can meet you at 12.45 because I have an appointment with God. And somebody say, well, Daniel, how about Outback for dinner, 5 o'clock? No, I've got something I need to do. I need to be in the presence of God. I can meet you at 5.45. Daniel prayed in the lion's den, and God shut the mouth of lions. I'm currently praying for you who are in the lion's den. God would deliver you too. You see, there's power in prayer. And one of the greatest promises in all the Bible is Jesus said, I will do whatever you ask in my name. And I'm perplexed because sometimes I ask in his name and he doesn't do it. <laughs> Have you ever prayed for something and you knew God could do it and he didn't? And you asked, did I do something wrong? Is God not listening to me? Is God angry at me? So I ask, what is the purpose of prayer? The purpose of prayer is to get to know God on an intimate level and to get to know His will. God is not a puppet on a string. He's not a genie in a bottle that we rub hard enough, He kind of pops out. The purpose of prayer is to get to know God Himself intimately and align ourselves to His will. God is not the equivalent of Santa Claus. If we do all the right things, we go to church even in COVID times, we go to small group and do Zoom, we give even when it hurts. If we've been a good boy, then we'll get everything we want. But if you're bad, sorry, Charlie. God is not a button to be pushed. God is a relationship to be pursued. Let me say that one more time. God is not a button you push. God is a relationship that he wants us to pursue. This morning, we're going to see the power of prayer manifested as the people of God pray. That's you and I, the people of God. He calls us to come to his throne room because God himself is seated on the throne. And being on the throne means he is king. He has all power and authority. He can make the sun stand still. He can send fire from heaven. He can shut the mouth of lions. He can preserve the lives of his people. Esther chapter 5, here we go. Question number one is, how was Esther's life transformed by fasting and prayer? Pastor John left us last week with a cliffhanger. The storyline thus far is that Esther is the new queen of Persia. You could say that she is a diva. You won't be offended if I say she's a diva, would you? 
She has won the Persian beauty contest. All the girls from all over the kingdom came, and she was chosen, just like Mary was chosen to be the mother of Messiah. And she is a kept woman. By kept, I mean she is given all the privileges of being a queen. She has maids to cook her food. She has maids to wash her clothes. She has maids to <laughs> make her bed. She has maids to bring her tea. And by kept, by kept, I mean she's out of the loop. She's not aware of this man named Haman's plots to annihilate the Jews. Her father, her adoptive father, Mordecai, refuses to bow down to Haman, and that infuriates Haman. Haman is second to the king. He's the prime minister. And he's an Agagite, which means he's a descendant of Agag of the Amalekites. God had said that Israel would be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. And there's bad blood between Haman and Mordecai. They have issues with one another. So Haman was insulted that Mordecai would not bow down to him. And he went to the king and he said, there's a people group here whose customs are different than ours, who don't keep our laws, who are a threat, and they should be annihilated. And to sweeten the pot, Haman offered to put 10,000 talents into the national treasury. And these two, Haman and the king, then drink wine to celebrate. Meanwhile, the edict to annihilate the Jews goes out to 127 provinces. Esther is oblivious to what Haman is up to. She is unaware of what King Xerxes has agreed to. So Mordecai hears about this decree, and he tears his clothes, chapter 4. He puts on sackcloth, and he wails at the city gate. Now, it's not a common thing to see a man weeping publicly, but Mordecai now, hearing this news about this edict, rips his clothing, and he wails publicly, and Esther's maids tell, him, tell her about Mordecai's distress, and she sends him clothes, and Mordecai refuses to put them on. So Esther sends someone else to find out why. And Mordecai then breaks the news to her. He tells her about the 10,000 talents Haman has said he'll put in the national treasury. He gives her a copy of the text for the order of annihilation. And for Esther, this is a moment of clarity. Mordecai is asking her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Up until now, Esther is simply blended in with the culture. She is compromised. She is not told anybody she's Jewish. She is beautiful. She's the queen, but she's kind of undercover. There's only one way that you get to see the king, and that's to be invited. You never appear before the king uninvited. So Esther now makes a turn toward faith. She replies to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or three nights, and I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. How did fasting and prayer transform Esther? She comes out of this season of fasting and praying, fasting and praying with a powerful plan. Her powerful prayers have produced a powerful plan, and the plan will involve courage. 
she has been transformed by her prayers and the prayers of God's people. And she will do something really brave. We are in a faith moment here. She realizes that Haman isn't playing. He's serious about wiping out the Jews. She realizes that she is Jewish and that she and her people are at risk. She realizes that God has providentially put her in a position to save her people. She will have to step out in faith. And this will mean she will have to own her true identity. She will have to call out Haman. And she will have to ask the king to reverse his decree. There are moments when faith is required. Right now, the Supreme Court of the United States is in one of those moments. Since 1973, abortion has been made legal in America. Viability was considered to be in the third trimester. Now we know that viability is much, much earlier than simply the third trimester. For instance, in the University of Alabama, a little baby was born at 21 weeks, nine ounces, and is still alive. Margaret's a daughter was born at 33 and a half weeks. Roe versus Wade has the potential to be overturned as federal law. States can determine their own laws. Texas has already outlawed the practice of abortion. And the case before the Supreme Court right now is a Texas law that forbids abortion after the 15th week. What happens when God's people pray? Esther chapter 5. Let's do it. On the third day, it says, she's been fasting. Her people have been fasting and praying. Did I ever tell you that there's power in prayer? The people are praying, Lord, give her strength. Give her courage. Give her favor before the king. Stop this evil plan. The people of God got serious about praying for her and praying over this situation. And she put on her royal robes. Now, she's been queen for five years. She's been eating some of that good Persian food, saffron rice, shish kebab, baba ganoush. Maybe the royal robe she could wear at 15, she can't wear at 20. I could see her in her closet saying, no, no, no. I don't think that'll fit. She selects the royal robe that perhaps the king might like. She wears her hair like the king might like her hair. She splashes on some perfume, and she looks in the mirror, and she says, if I perish, I perish. She stood in that inner court of the palace. This is the king's palace at Persepolis, known for 36 columns with lions and eagles on tops. She stood in the, eagle, in the inner court in front of the king's hall, and the king was sitting at his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. She doesn't know if the king is in a good mood or a bad mood. She doesn't know if the king is preoccupied with other business. You see, the king has suffered his losses. He's been down to Thermopylae and lost there in the Battle of Salamis. He's depleted the national treasury. She hasn't been invited into the presence of the king, and the king is sitting on his throne in a position of power and authority. And this is a king who's not afraid to snuff somebody out. Verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther, he said, What's up, girl? 
not in the text. He, no, he said, where you been, girl? No, he didn't say that. But when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, remember Proverbs 21.1. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like watercourses wherever he pleases. She's now 20 years old, been queen for five years in a royal robe, and he was pleased with her. And he held out the golden scepter that was in his hand. The golden scepter to me is a picture of Jesus Christ because our king is on the throne. He has no equals. He has no rivals. He is unequaled. He is unsurpassed. He is the ruler of the universe. When we come into God's throne room, we come before the king, and the king is sympathetic to our request. He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. So let's come boldly into God's presence, into his throne room, to ask for grace, his favor, and mercy in our times of need. You see, in God's throne room, there's this big welcome sign that says, come on in. John, Ro John Robin, a.k.a. Budge, my two-year-old grandson, I was with him this last Thanksgiving. I was the keeper of the Chex Mix. Now, Chex Mix has rice checks, it has um, nuts, it also has little M&Ms. And John Robin wasn't really interested in the rice checks or the nuts, but he was very interested in the M&Ms. And he called them not M&Ms, he called them M's. He's a pop, M's. He held out his hand. Now, I enjoy being with Budge. I delighted in being asked and giving him M's, but there were times when I couldn't give Budge all the M's he wanted. There's other things to do in life besides eat M's. I had to regulate what was good for him, you see. And when we come into the throne room, we come before a great king who knows what is best for us, who is sympathetic to us, who totally gets us. He knows what we're going through. He knows the pressures we are facing because he's entered into humanity. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And so we come boldly before one who is our king. And so Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. I think that many Christians have never experienced the true presence of God. What does it mean to come in the presence of a king? You see, if we're going to be transformed by his presence... We have to become familiar with God's presence. We're told we can come boldly, confidently. We know that God is present everywhere, right? God is in this room. We can't be somewhere where God is not. David asked, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere, because you can see God's fingerprints everywhere. The psalmist said, when I consider the heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have put in place, what is man that you are mindful of us? The God who the universe would care about us, that we would be on his mind, that God would be mindful of us. But beyond the omnipresence of God, there is the manifold presence of God. And you know when I have felt God's presence most intensely? It's been in sessions of prayer with God's people. God just seems to show up when we pray with one another. This for her is a moment of faith. She is going to become a heroine. 
She has spent time fasting and praying. It's changed her life. You see, God has a path for her to take. And there's something that God's going to compel you to say. There's going to be something that God compels you to do. There's going to be something that God compels you to give because you prayed about it. The path to your destiny goes through being in God's presence, receiving God's assignment, claiming God's promises, and being courageous. You see, when you come into God's presence, you don't have all the answers, but you're coming to Him who knows all things. And you don't have it all together. You come in the presence of Him who knows what's best for you and knows the future. The assignment I was given in Haiti came to me through a three-week session of fasting and prayer. I was studying and meditating on Isaiah chapter 58, which said, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? I realized these people had been under oppression. They had had corruption in their land, but we were going to go and disciple their pastors. We're going to teach them how to open the Bible and hear from God. We're going to teach them how to function in small groups and teach them how to preach the word. And they were going to pass that on to farmers. And those farmers would learn how to trust God and walk with God. And as they broke union with their false gods and they entered into true union with the living God, God was going to pour out blessing upon his people. The power of fasting and prayer. And the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? Verse 3. What is your request? What a moment, right? How sweet can this be? A sweet spot when the king says to you, whatever you want. Jesus was passing through a city, and there was a blind man. And the blind man heard this procession of people. And he asked, what is this all about? And they said, Jesus is passing through. And he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And the disciples didn't get it. They said, you know, hush, be quiet. (laughs) Jesus is an important man. And Jesus heard the man, the blind man, say, have mercy upon me, son of David. And he said, have the man be brought to me. And they brought the man to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, what is it that you want? The king of the universe in the presence of a blind man said, what is it that you want? And he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, receive your sight according to your faith. If you were standing in the presence of Almighty God and he said to you, what is it that you want? What would you say? What would you say about your nation? What would you say about your community? What would you say about your family, your marriage, your children, your grandchildren? What is your request? Esther, what is it you want? Up to half my kingdom will be given to you. Now, I smile when I read that because... When my kids were little, and I had something they wanted, like a cup of coffee, and they said, Dad, can I have some of the coffee? I would say to them, half my kingdom you can have. So I give them some of my coffee. 
So this king now, having great power, great resources, looks at Esther and says, what is it that you want? Up to half my kingdom. Now some believe that she's afraid and she froze in this moment. But I believe she is sizing up the situation, waiting for the, wrong, the right moment. Some believe that Xerxes made her feel at ease, giving her a blank check, inviting her to fill in the amount, offering her up half the kingdom. The king here is being generous. Now, what you have to understand is there's no reason to believe that Xerxes would ever be generous with anybody. There's no reason to believe that his heart would be open to this kind of request. Here's an absolute ruler who's not really a nice person. But Esther is showing tact by not blurting out her ultimate request right away. She must first win the king's confidence in her. So she invites the king and Haman to a banquet. Look at verse 4. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to a banquet I have prepared for them. You've heard the statement that a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Well, the queen here has figured out what this king likes to eat. And she's inviting him to a banquet. Now, it's very important. There's going to be banquet number one and banquet number two. The banquet number one is going to be sort of getting acquainted. They haven't been together for about 30 days. They have a very dysfunctional marriage. But God is at work behind the scenes, and He controls the scenes that He is behind. And if you believe this, this will bring great comfort. And the king said, bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. And as the king drank wine at the banquet, verse 6, now the king is feeling relaxed, letting his guard down. And what does the king do? The king says to Esther, what is your petition? Woman, I can't read your mind, for it has been granted to you. What is your request? It will be given to you half your kingdom. He asked her a second and a third time, what is it? I'm the king. I can grant it. Now, with such a carte blanche promise from the king, it's surprising that Esther does not make her appeal for her people. After all, what's going on here is there's an edict out to annihilate all the Jews. And now the king says, what is it that you want? Wouldn't you think that Esther would kind of blurt it out and say, king, save my people? But she waits. And she says in verse 7, my petition and request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them, and I will answer the king's question. How do we see the sovereignty of God? Three ways. First, the Lord restrained Esther from telling Xerxes the truth about Haman. While there may have been some fear in her heart, I don't think that fear held her back. The Lord was directing her words when she needed to say it. Secondly, we see the sovereign hand of God in the way that Xerxes accepted the delay and agreed to come to the second banquet. Monarchs like Xerxes weren't accustomed to waiting. Third evidence of God's sovereignty is that none of Esther's maids spill the beans about Haman. They keep it a secret. So Esther is a Jew, and he asks, what is the request? The next thing I want you to see 
is the plotting and scheming that happens of Haman's plan. Haman went out that day happy as a clam, pleased in his heart that he was invited to the first banquet with the king. Esther had included him. He had such a nice dinner. He drank some fine wine. He was feeling fine, and he was next to the king. But then there was some rain on his parade. He saw Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't stand up for him or bow before him. Now, bear in mind that Haman is the prime minister of the mightiest country in the world. Now, we all stand before a judge as they enter a court as a sign of respect, but Mordecai did not stand. It means, I have no respect for you. And how did Haman respond? He was filled with rage, and his anger controlled him. The, the, his deep-seated anger, he was going to take Mordecai and his people out. It tells a lot about a person what irritates them, right? Verse 10 says that Haman restrained himself. It seems as if Haman refrained from killing Mordecai on the spot. Again, we see the providence of God in the hand of God by not allowing Haman to take Mordecai out. Then in front of his wife and his friends, he boasted about his wealth, he bragged about his sons, he boasted about his position, he bragged about being invited to the banquet, he boasted that he was invited to the next banquet. Then the Bible teaches us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride is the ground in which all the other sins grow. The fact that he was invited to a private banquet of the king and queen fed his pride. But look at verse 13 if you see it there in chapter 5. Yet all this does not satisfy me. All this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the city gate. Haman's problem wasn't Mordecai. Haman's problem was his heart. There was malice in his heart. Malice is deep-seated hatred that brings delight in someone else's suffering. Haman had all the things of this world, but those things did not satisfy him. So his wife says to him, why don't you build a gallows 75 feet high in the morning, impale Mordecai, then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. I don't really know who's creepier, <laughs> Haman or Haman's wife. Because she says, why don't you just build some gallows 75 feet tall and just impale this guy and be done with him to go have a nice dinner. We are not surprised by spiritual warfare, are we? So many of our children are targeted by the enemy. The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. We see on the news another school shooting. We know of somebody who's addicted to heroin or fentanyl. Our own kids struggle with their own gender identity, sexual orientation. We are living in a time of great confusion in our land. And the enemy has taken so many captive. God is calling us to fight for our kids, to go to battle for their freedom, to ask God to deliver them. There was a 
father who had a son, and the son was in a bad way, and he brought the son to see Jesus, but Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He couldn't see the son, so the disciples were asked to heal the son, and they couldn't do it. And when Jesus came down from the mountain, there was an argument between the disciples and the Pharisees about this boy. And Jesus said, he commanded the boy to be brought to him. You know, powerful things happen when we bring our children to Jesus. We bring our grandchildren to Jesus. So they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it essentially threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, he rolled around, he foamed at the mouth. It was a demonstration of the raging hatred the demonic realm has for Jesus. And then Jesus, the great physician, drew the father out. He said, how long has this boy been like this? That's what a physician does, right? We get some history before we treat the patient. He said, from his childhood, he's been thrown into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. The father has tried the doctors. The doctors couldn't help. The father has come to the disciples. The disciples couldn't help. The father has come to religious leaders. They couldn't help. If you can do anything, he says, take pity on us and help us. I can just think about this father dreading the next episode with his son. He might be burned in the fire. He might be drowned in the water. Longing for his son to be made well, he brought him to Jesus. He said, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And then, Jesus, and then he says, if you can, right? Help us if you can. And Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. To God, there are not human limitations. Everything is in the realm of possibility to the one who believes. The boy's father said, if you can do anything, and Jesus says, all things are possible to the one who believes. In other words, what releases the power of God in our life is faith, to believe that God is able to do what we cannot do. And the father, in a great moment of honesty, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That is an honest moment, a transparent moment. Lord, I do believe that you are the Messiah, but I have my doubts. So many times we become settled in unbelief. It will be as it is. It is as it is, and nothing will ever change. My boy will never get better. But with God, all things are possible. God can do the miraculous. God can intervene in the situation. God can change the whole equation if you only believed. And Jesus cast the Spirit out. And in a quiet moment, the disciples came and said, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said, these, these kind come out only by fasting and prayer. Only by fasting and prayer. So what would happen if God's people all got together and began to pray?
I believe the power of God would be released. Nations may be changed. Marriages may be resolved. Kids may be directed. There could be all kinds of things. People be delivered. Peter was in prison. The church began to pray for him, and God delivered Peter out of prison. There is power in prayer. You see, where there's much prayer, there's much power. And where there's some prayer, there's some power. But where there's no prayer, there's no power. The power of the church is the power of prayer, of us getting together and praying together. So, we're going to take partake communion together. Because this is a moment of just drawing near to God, of remembering what God has done for us. We do not fight this battle to gain victory. We fight this battle from victory. We do not come seeking God's affections. We know God's affections towards us. We come to rekindle our affections for God, to remember His body, to remember His blood, that He was pierced for our transgressions, that He shed His blood for our forgiveness, and His power is released as God's people pray. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we quiet ourselves in your presence now, realizing that there's a power untapped in our lives, the great power of prayer, of aligning our wills with your wills, your will, and to know, God, you intimately well, that you are good and beautiful and powerful and true, that you are righteous and you are holy and you're compassionate and you show favor and you give mercy and grace in our times of need. Would you hear your people's needs this morning as we pray? Would you allow us, Lord, to have honest moments before you and saying words like the man said, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief turn into belief. That as I trust you with this situation, as I surrender it to you, Lord, I relinquish control, and I believe that you're an all-powerful God, and you have my best interests at heart, and you want to see, God, breakthroughs. You want to see deliverances happen, but it relies on us being in concert with you, praying, believing, having faith. Increase our faith, Lord. Give us the faith of a mustard seed that believes when we pray the mountains will move. Those things that have not moved before can move by prayer. God, unleash the power of prayer in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that everybody comes to church with a burden. Um, Joseph had a burden. Mary had a burden. And you have a burden. The longer I talk to somebody, I know that they're carrying a burden. Since we're talking about Esther and God's providence, I carried a burden for about 10 years for Debbie, actually. She was involved in a head-on collision. She suffered injuries, and there really was no remedy for her condition. But I believed in my heart that God would provide for us and take care of us. And a surgeon was working on a transplant procedure, kind of removing torn ligaments and putting new ones in. And during that period of time, we found him after about 10 years. He performed a surgery on her. And I realized then that why God had caused me to pray, that at the end of that 10-year period, there'd be a solution to the problem. You are carrying a burden right now. 
And the way you deal with your burden is you lay your burden at the feet of Jesus. You relinquish control. You surrender to him because he does care for you. If you want to stay and pray, you have the time to, want to? Join us. Others want to say goodbye. We'll be back in Esther 6 next week. We'll see you then.